I've read about a really interesting set of psychology experiments that were done at Princeton University a little while ago. I guess the subjects of the experiment were exposed to a computer screen on which the, the psychologists, the researchers, would flash the image of a face, random stranger's face, for one second on the computer screen. And the picture there for one second, and then it disappeared, they asked the subjects to rate the face in terms of likability, trustability, competence, friendliness, happiness, and on all these kinds of different metrics. Basically, they showed a stranger's face for one second and then asked the subjects to judge that person's character. And what they discovered was that within one second of seeing a person's face, all of the subjects in the, of the experiment had made sound, solid, settled conclusions about the character of the stranger that, whose face they had seen um, in ways that actually were hard to change. It was hard to change their mind after the fact. And so the researchers said, well, I wonder how fast these impressions form. And so they showed the pictures for a half a second. And then they showed the pictures for a tenth of a second and concluded that within one-tenth of one second, faster than a human being can blink their eye, based entirely on what we see in somebody's face, we make hard and fast, settled conclusions about people's character. And the only thing that changes as the time duration goes up is our confidence in our conclusions. It's not like if you look at the face longer, you go, well, maybe they're not this way or that way. But no, you, you become resolved in your decision even more so, and you have greater confidence that the character judgment you've made about the person whose face you've seen for one-tenth of a second is accurate and true. Isn't that crazy? That's, that's making character judgments on people faster than the speed of rational thought. Without even thinking, boom, I know exactly what kind of person you are. Some psychologists call it social categorization. Where you look at a person and based simply on the visual data they provide, you drop them into a bucket of stereotyped people who all, that fit the pattern. Oh, you're a bus driver, you go in this bucket. Oh, you're a woman, you go in this bucket. Oh, you're an ex-girlfriend. You go in that bucket. And then you drop them in a bucket and then make judgments of them based on the bucket you've dropped them in. So you, within a tenth of a second, decide what a person is like, put them in a stereotyped bucket, and then make character judgments on them based on the bucket you put them in. That's how it works. And we all do it. And you know you do it. I do it. That's why you're surprised every time the guy who rides the Harley turns out to be a big teddy bear inside. That's why, like Goodwill Hunting, remember that movie? That's why you're surprised when the janitor turns out to be the genius. He's not in the genius bucket, he's in the janitor bucket. That makes no sense. That's why you're always surprised when the grandfather is more progressive than his 16 year old grandson, because you're like, you're old, you have old ideas. Why are you having new ideas? Because we look at a person, judge them in a second, drop them in a bucket, and they make character judgments based on what we think about them. All within one-tenth of one second. In the spirit of this connected series, where we're spending a month talking about inclusion, what do you think that does 
to our ability to have relationships with the people that we have judged in less than one-tenth of one second. That's what we want to talk about this morning. By taking some time to look at a very small, some would say even insignificant book of the Bible. The smallest letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul ever wrote, the smallest letter that he wrote in the New Testament, that some people said was so insignificant, it shouldn't even be included in the Bible. For years it was debated whether the book of Philemon should even be in the Bible. It's a personal letter about personal matters between people who are dead you know, a long time ago. Who cares? It doesn't teach anything profound. It doesn't advance our theology of Jesus. It doesn't tell us anything new about the church. Get, out of, get it out of here. That's what people said. And yet I had a seminary professor who once said, the book of Philemon, as small as it is, as insignificant as it seems, is one of the most important letters in the New Testament because if the church gets this wrong, they don't understand anything about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's quite a statement. The book of Philemon is a book that comes with a story. And the story begins with the apostle Paul in prison. It says in Philemon chapter 1 verse 1, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. The book of Philemon is a little bit like walking into a movie late. <laughs> you walk in, you sit down, the action's already started, there's a conversation going on, you don't even know who these two people are, you have no idea what's happened up to this point. Let me get you caught up in the story. Paul is sitting in a prison cell in the city of Ephesus, most likely. He's about 100 miles away from his friend Philemon's house, who lives in Colossae. Paul's been living in Ephesus and he's been preaching the good news about Jesus Christ and starting churches and that preaching has gotten him thrown in prison because Paul's message in essence is the only king you need to follow is Jesus. And you kind of get into political trouble when your message is don't follow Caesar because Jesus is the real king. That's not a good message. That gets you thrown in jail. And so Paul is sitting in a prison cell in Ephesus when one day a man appears. Standing in front of him, a, f- a familiar face, a face Paul has seen before. Not somebody he knows well, but it was the face of Onesimus. Paul knew Onesimus because Onesimus was a slave owned by Paul's friend Philemon. And I'm sure when Paul saw Onesimus standing there in his prison cell, he must have been relieved. He must have been overjoyed. He must have thought, my friend Philemon has heard that I'm in prison and he has sent his slave to bring me supplies, to bring me food and bring me money and clothes and blankets and books and all the stuff the Roman government doesn't give you when you're in prison. They didn't think it was their responsibility to feed the prisoners. (laughs) But Philemon hadn't sent Onesimus on a mission of mercy to help Paul. Now, as Paul talks to Philemon, what he realizes, or to Onesimus, what he realizes is that Onesimus has run away. That he's done what so many slaves had done before him and what many slaves have done since. He grabbed a fistful of cash and he ran for the hills. Well, he didn't run for the hills, he ran for the city of Ephesus, which may have been his hometown. He was looking to disappear into the crowd and to finally find his freedom. We don't know why Onesimus ran away from Philemon. The letter doesn't tell us. 
Slaves ran away for a few different reasons. Uh, they ran away because they were being mistreated, but Philemon doesn't sound like that kind of, kind of master. They ran away because they were afraid they were about to be sold. They ran away because they did something wrong and they were afraid they were going to be punished. They ran away because they were afraid they were never going to get their freedom. I don't know why Onesimus ran away. I don't know why Onesimus <clears throat> sought out Paul. Why he went to find Philemon's friend to confide in him, but he did. And here's Paul sitting in a prison cell in Ephesus with his friend's slave, Onesimus. Excuse me, and he's got to decide what it is that he's going to do. Actually, he doesn't. I think Paul knows from the beginning exactly what he's going to do. See, Paul knows that he can't keep Onesimus. First of all, it was against the law. If you were caught in the, if you were caught holding on to somebody's runaway slave, that was considered to be theft. You had somebody's property that belonged to them and not you. You had stolen it. So the law said you had twenty days to turn the slave over to the authorities, and the charges would be dropped. Besides, he couldn't do that to his friend Philemon. You know, violate the friendship by hanging on to a slave like that. It's, he wasn't going to keep him, and he couldn't hand him over to the authorities. You hand over a slave, a runaway slave to the authorities. It was a serious crime in the ancient world. The Roman Empire, as all empires are, including ours, was built on slave labor. That's how empires get built. That's how you get to sustain the kind of level of luxury that we get to sustain. Somebody at the bottom end of the food chain has to be footing the bill. And you start to get slaves thinking that they can just stop doing their job and start running away. Well, that's just going to upset the whole system. And now you've got to actually pay people real wages to make jeans. And now I can't afford 19 pairs. I can only have two. And then nobody wants that. It's just, you hear what I'm saying? Slave labor is how the Roman Empire worked. And they frowned on people running away. And so when, they, when a runaway slave was captured, he was clapped into chains and brought back to his master who punished him. And the most usual punishment for running away as a slave was crucifixion. You nail them to a cross in public to dissuade other slaves from thinking that maybe that might be a good idea. Paul couldn't keep them and he couldn't hand them over to the authorities. I think he knew pretty quickly what it was that he was going to do. After Onesimus had been with him for some time, Paul drafted a letter to Philemon. And he rolled it up and he gave it to Onesimus and he sent Onesimus back to his owner with the letter in his hand. I can imagine Philemon working in his home office, shuffling papers around his, well, shuffling clay tablets around his desk or parchments or whatever they wrote on in those days. And all of a sudden, he hears all this commotion in the courtyard, right? There's all this clatter and distraction and noise and there's this buzz and nobody seems to know what to do. And so he gets up from behind his desk and he walks out in the courtyard and there he is standing right in the middle of the courtyard. Runaway slave. This useless worthless traitor who stole from him and then ran away and cost him all this money, right? Not just the money that he stole, but the money that Philemon had to pay to rent a slave to replace him and the money that Philemon had to spend to, find, to hire a slave catcher to bring him back. But Onesimus hadn't just cost him financially, he cost him reputationally. 
So when your slave runs away, people begin to talk. Maybe, maybe you're a cruel master. Maybe you're just incompetent at running your household. And besides, your social standing in the city of Colossae where you live depends on the number of slaves that you own. And when slaves start to run away, your social standing begins to dip. This guy had cost him an awful lot. And now here he was, come back home, standing in his courtyard, shamefaced, staring at the ground, tail between his legs and holding a letter in his hand. Philemon reaches out and he grabs the letter out of Onesimus' hands. And he opens it up and he begins to read. It's from his friend Paul. And when, Ones- or when Philemon gets to the heart of the letter, Philemon chapter 1 verse 17, when he gets to the heart of the letter, he has to sit down because this is what Paul writes. He says, so if you consider me a partner, if you consider me a colleague, a friend, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. Philemon can't believe it. How could, how could Paul write such a thing? I mean, how would Philemon have welcomed Paul? With laughter, probably with joy, with hugs, maybe. He would have smothered him with kisses to see his friend back again. He would have offered him anything Paul wanted, a warm bath, a change of clothes, a warm bed. He would have offered him a, a lavish meal, a fit for a king, way more than Paul could have ever eaten. Whatever Paul wanted, it would have been his. Philemon would have tripped over himself for Paul to understand just how honored Philemon felt that Paul was back in his home, for Paul to understand just how much Philemon loved him. And now Paul says, I want you to treat this filthy runaway slave who stole from you the way you would treat me. I mean, it's unthinkable. I mean, first of all, this is a slave. And Philemon's a master. And masters and slaves don't have relationships like the relationship Philemon has with Paul. In fact, Aristotle says that friendship is impossible between masters and slaves. And do you know why? Because a slave isn't really a human being. It looks like a human being, but he's not. A slave is what Aristotle calls a living tool. And a rake is what Aristotle calls a lifeless slave. It's the same thing. A slave is just a tool, something you put in the shed and pull out and use and abuse the way you need to in order to get the job done. Aristotle said a slave is not a human being. It's a subhuman category. That's why a master and a slave can't have friendship. You can't have a friendship with something that isn't human. But more than a slave, this... This is a a runaway slave who stole from him. This is a thief whose crimes deserve crucifixion. I mean, how could Paul say, welcome him as you would welcome me? Well, Paul tells him. Starting in verse 8, Paul says, The reason I want you to welcome him is because despite what you see, Onesimus is not what you think. In verse 8, he says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It's none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. And I'm sending him who is my very heart. Back to you. Paul says, listen, I know you think you see a runaway slave and a thief, but that's not what you're looking at. I don't know how long Onesimus was with Paul in prison, 
But it was long enough for Paul to share the good news about Jesus Christ with him and to convince Onesimus to turn his life over in faith to Jesus' leadership. To ask for forgiveness for all the ways that he'd messed it up and to ask Jesus to begin the journey of making him into a new kind of person. See, Onesimus in that prison cell with Paul had become a Christian. Paul said, he was my son that I gave birth to in prison. I gave birth to him in the faith. But he was more than just Paul's son in the faith. He'd also become a co-worker, a colleague. Paul says, I know he was useless to you. The word Onesimus actually means useful. Paul says, I know he was a terribly named slave because his name is useful, but he was useless to you. But guess what? Now, because of what Christ has done in his life, he's become useful. And not just useful to you, he's become useful to me. He's become a co-worker with me in the cause of filling the world with the love of God because of Jesus Christ. He's a co- not just a Christian, he's a co-worker. And not just that, He's a friend. Paul says, I'm so I'm sending him home. My very heart. Paul says, this guy is not just my right arm. He is my very heart. He's become so dear to me. He is a part of me. And I want you to treat him like you would treat me. And Paul says, if I have reason to think that way, then certainly Philemon, you have all the more reason. In verse 15, he says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul says, think about who, who, who Onesimus is to you now, Philemon. He says, no longer a slave, a living tool, some kind of category of subhuman being. In Christ, he's a fellow man, a person with dignity and worth, your equal, who deserves to have you look him in the eye, man to man. But he's more than just a regular, random man, a stranger on the street. No, no, this man is your brother. See, I led him to Christ in prison, which means he's my son in the faith. I led you to Christ earlier, which means you're my son in my faith, and since you're both my sons, the two of you are brothers in Christ Jesus, and not just brothers, you're dearly beloved brothers. You're cherished Brothers, your brothers the way brothers are supposed to be. I say this to my girls all the time. Girls, treat each other like sisters. You are the only sisters that you will ever have. You have each other for life. You are bonded until the day you die. So treat each other like sisters. That's what Paul's saying to Philemon. He's saying, this man has become your brother in faith. Treat him like him. Love him like it. And he's become useful to you. Notice Paul is kind of hinting, saying Onesimus no longer works for you. Now he works with you for the cause of Christ to fill the world with the love of God. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Overlook the socioeconomic class category kind of way that you've been brought up to think set aside all of the anger and injury from the offense that he's committed towards you in forgiveness and embrace this man as your equal 
like a brother would embrace a brother that he's not seen forever, a brother that he deeply loves so that the two of you can be co-workers for the cause of Christ right where you are. Because, Paul says, that's how it works in the church. See, everywhere else, everywhere else, categories like slave and master, they matter. Everywhere else in the world, we look at each other and we categorize each other according to a a, a completely accepted set of categories. We categorize each other as professional or labor, as rich or poor, as labor or management. We categorize each other as man or woman, as old or young. We categorize each other according to race. We categorize each other according to age, according to color, color, according to all sorts of things. We, we categorize each other in all these different categories and then decide how we're going to relate to each other based on the categories that we've assigned to each other. That's how things work in the world. We make these snap judgments of character on each other and then we decide whether or not we feel like we want to have a relationship with somebody of that kind of character and all in less than a tenth of a second. And Paul says that that's just not the way that it is in the church. In Colossians chapter 3, a letter that Paul wrote at exactly the same time that he wrote the letter to Philemon. In fact, Onesimus carried in one hand the letter to Colossians in the other hand the letter to Philemon. He carried them both. In Colossians 3, Paul says, you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Paul says, you're not the same person you used to be in Christ and in the church. You're different people than you used to be. And then he says this, here in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. In other passages, he added men or women. He says, but Christ is all and in all. In the church, there's no such thing as rich and poor. There's no such thing as old and young. There's no such thing as men and women. There's no such thing as, as uh, you know, management and labor. There's no such, all the categories that everyone else uses all around the world to judge each other. Those categories are fundamentally irrelevant in the church. The only category that matters is that we're together on a journey in Christ. That's all. Within the church, we are all equal. Everything besides the shared unity we have in Christ is fundamentally irrelevant and ought not to affect the way we treat each other. Jesus once said, don't let anyone call you rabbi. Don't let them call you pastor. Don't let them call you teacher. Don't let them call you doctor. Don't let anyone slap a label on you, a good one or a bad one, because what labels do is they separate and elevate. They're designed to separate people from each other based on the things that divide us and to elevate one above the other in a social hierarchy. They destroy relationships. That's why Paul says there are no labels in the church. The only label in the church is in Christ and you all share it as equals. In the church, you're all the same. So the question for us this morning is, who have we labeled? Who have we judged? What assumptions have we made about people without even knowing them based on what we've seen in less than tenth of a second? What categories have we dumped people in? How have we judged people? You know, whether or not they're professionals, a doctor, pastor, teacher, whatever, or judge them for not being those things. We've judged people for being homeless or poor. And we've judged people for being rich and having nice and lavish homes. 
Judged people for being old. Judged people for being young. Judged people based on their race, gender, ethnicity, dress, look, weight, size, education, religious affiliation, sexual orientation. We have judged people, slapping labels on people all over the place. Who is it that you've labeled? And how has it affected the degree to which you're willing to welcome them? How has it affected your willingness to walk across the cafe and say hi to them? To greet them in the lobby? To sit with them in the auditorium? How has it affected the guest list for your Super Bowl party? How has it affected who you choose to hang out with? How has it affected who you choose to let into the vulnerability of your inner world? See, I think one of the guys in the connection department said it. We like to play the social stock market. We like to invest in high-value people who are going to help our worth go up, and we avoid investing in losers who are just going to drag us down. And Paul says all of it is irrelevant, and none of it matters, and that is not the way it works in the church. We don't label, we don't categorize, we don't judge. We see each other as equals together on a journey in Christ and that is the only thing that matters. It's a community of radical inclusivity and it's a community of radical forgiveness. Paul says the only thing that matters is that we're family together on a journey in Christ and he says as family we only know one way to treat each other. It says therefore as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved clothe yourself with compassion, kindness humility, gentleness and patience bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against somebody forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. Paul says the only way we know how to treat each other in the community of faith, the community of equals whose only label is together on a journey in Christ, the only way we know how to treat each other is with compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience. Now imagine Philemon and Onesimus are hearing this letter being read in church and they're hearing Paul say, in humility, forgive each other knowing that Christ has had to forgive you. Philemon says, how can I hold a grudge against Onesimus knowing how much Christ has had to forgive me for all the ways that I've screwed it up to? This is, this is how we behave. Paul says there's no condemnation for them who are in Christ, for them who are in the church. There's no internal condemnation in your own spirit or your own head. Change the tape. Stop telling yourself that you're guilty or ought to be ashamed of yourself, and there's no external condemnation. No one ought to be looking at you, condemning you for anything. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it, to rescue it. He said to a woman caught in the act of cheating on her husband, I don't condemn you, but go and make better choices. There is no condemnation for stuff that we've done within the community of faith. We don't judge people based on our assumptions of who they are and we don't judge people based on our supposed knowledge of what it is that they've done. You just, you let it go. You let it go. What are you holding on to, judging somebody else for what they've done, whether they injured you or somebody else? What are you hanging on to that you just need to forgive in humility and it's admit I'm as screwed up as they are and just let it go? And yeah, I know that they hurt you. 
as deeply as Onesimus hurt Philemon. And yeah, I know that forgiveness takes time. And yeah, I know that forgiveness is different than reconciliation. It even is for God. God provides forgiveness at the cross of Christ, but reconciliation only comes when we come to him in repentance and say, I'm sorry, can I make it right? I need to change. That's when reconciliation comes. I know those things. But Paul says to Philemon in the letter, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge it to my account. By the way, you owe me your very life, so I think we're more than square. Let it go. Just let it go. And welcome each other as though you were welcoming Christ. That's the message of the letter of Philemon. That until the church becomes this radically inclusive, radically forgiving community of equals where there's absolutely no labels and no judgments on anybody, never mind who they are or what they've done, where we just see each other as equal and together on a journey in Christ until the church becomes that place, we haven't yet fully understood the good news about what Jesus has done. The question is, did Philemon do it? I don't know. <laughs> I said it was like coming into a movie late. Well, we had to leave the movie early. We don't know how the movie ends. I tend to think he did. I mean, otherwise, why would you include the letter in the New Testament if Philemon disobeyed everything in it? You throw that letter away. You don't include it in the Bible. I think that Philemon probably did exactly what Paul wanted him to do, which was to welcome Onesimus just like he would welcome Paul. To grant Onesimus his freedom which is what Paul hints at later on in the letter. And he sent him back to work with Paul for the entire time that Paul was in prison. This is my guess. And then when Paul was done, he sent Onesimus back and Onesimus served Philemon faithfully for all of the rest of Philemon's life. That's how I imagine the story ending because that's what Paul would have wanted. There's a cool appendix to the story. 50 years later, there's another letter. Not written by Paul, but written by a bishop from Antioch by the name of Ignatius. And in that letter, Ignatius refers to the bishop of Ephesus named Onesimus. That was a common name, and there's no way to know whether it was this Onesimus. But wouldn't it be cool if it was? That this runaway thief slave who found Christ in a prison cell with Paul had his entire life trajectory transformed for the simple reason that Philemon was willing to embrace him like a friend and a brother rather than judging him for who he was and what he did. I believe that kind of radical inclusivity has the power to change lives. Let's pray together. Father, I know that I judge people and I know that others do too. And often God, it's not conscious and it's not even rational and it's not even intended to be malicious. It's just an instinct that we have to put people in categories and judge them and that just means, God, we need your Holy Spirit to escape this trap. To help us 
transform the way we see each other, to stop judging each other for who we suppose each other are or what we think we know the, the other person has done. God, would you make our community the kind of community that radiates your love into the world by being so radically inclusive that everyone looking in from the outside has to assume that something unique and miraculous is happening in our midst, which of course it is, that you are changing us from the inside out by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.